Jesus is the ultimate object of worship and faith. today, which is Luke 17, verse 11 to 19. And in this passage, we see that Jesus accepts the worship of a recently healed sick man. And in doing that and talking about this situation, Jesus shows that he is the ultimate object. He's the ultimate object of all worship and faith. So as we worship with this continuous outpouring, it should be the continuous outpouring of all people should be directed at Jesus. Let's look at how this is evidenced in our passage today. I'll read the passage and you follow along as I read. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along the Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Main message of this passage is this. Jesus is the ultimate object of worship and faith. Jesus is the ultimate object of worship and faith. So we'll look today at, at three points. We'll look at three different things from this passage. The first is who is Jesus? And then what is worship? And then how does faith inform worship? How does faith inform worship? And I'll give those to you again as we go through. But first, let's look at the setting of this passage that we see in verse 11. It says, On the way to Jerusalem... He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. This is no insignificant statement by the author. In case we forget, over the last few chapters, 
Jesus has been teaching and conversing with various people. And Luke reminds us that during this time, Jesus is going towards, he's on his way to Jerusalem. This started back in chapter 9, where Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he's going there, he knows he's going there to suffer and to die. And so we're in this area between Samaria and Galilee. Galilee is to the north, and then Samaria is to the south of it, is below it. And then below Samaria is uh, Judea, is where Jerusalem is at. So many times the Jews would travel around Samaria because they did not like the Samaritans, the people who lived there. The Samaritans were a, a mixed race of people. Some Jews had married others and had this new people had formed many, many years ago. And the Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They disagreed about almost everything, especially about where to worship God. There was a large conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans about the proper place of worshiping God. The Samaritans believed that the true temple of God was in a place in Samaria called Mount Gerizim, or Gerizim, where the Jews held that Jerusalem was God's city and the temple in Jerusalem was the proper place for people to worship Yahweh, worship the God of the Bible. And we see more about this conflict in John chapter 4, where Jesus speaks to the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan, and he's outside a Samaritan town speaking with her. Now, at this place, at this location between these two areas, we see that then this opens up the possibility and the likelihood that the people that Jesus interacts with are not only Jews, but also Samaritan. Luke has mentioned Samaritans previously, Back in chapter 9, Jesus was rejected by a Samaritan city, so they didn't go in. And some of the apostles at that point suggested that Jesus call down fire from heaven to consume the city. And then in chapter 10, Jesus told the parable of the Samaritan man who had compassion on the Jewish man who was lying on the side of the road dying, and he cared for him in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's keep this background, this framework in our minds as we work through the passage. So let's look first at point number one. Who is Jesus? According to this passage, verse 12 to 14 is what we'll look at first. It says, And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. So we see these ten lepers standing outside the city. They're somewhere near the city gate, but they are outside. At this time, a, a leper was someone who had a skin disease. Typically, it was not curable. And this could includes several or many different types of skin diseases. It was not limited to only one. And when someone was a leper, when they had leprosy, they were required to live outside of town. They were in a perpetual quarantine away from their family, away from their work, away from any fellowship. And if they did move about among where people might be, they had to call out in a loud voice saying, unclean, unclean. 
over and over in order to warn people to stay away from them. So we see that these lepers are social distancing themselves according to the leprosy prevention regulations of the day. And so they must have known about Jesus. They must have had some clue, some idea about his power to heal. That's why they called out to him and asked him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So we see from this one thing about Jesus is that he is the Master. He is the Master. Jesus is Master. When the lepers use this term for master, the Greek word means a master or teacher or someone with authority. And it's interesting that this word appears seven times in the Gospel of Luke. And it actually does not appear anywhere else in the other Gospels, This the Greek word that's translated master. And these seven times that it shows up in Luke, it's spoken by someone speaking to Jesus, but it's at that point that person's faith is lacking or their faith is in question. This is not saying master as in Lord or to indicate some belief. It just indicates a recognition of authority, recognition of some power, but it's at a distance. For example, in Luke 5 verse 5, Jesus told Peter to try fishing on the other side of the boat. And Peter says, Master, he uses that word, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. This is not from a place of faith, this is a a place of skepticism. And then in chapter 8, verse 24, when all the disciples are in the boat with Jesus and Jesus is sleeping, And there's a storm that comes, and they all think they're going to die. They wake Jesus and say, Master, Master, we are perishing. They're using that same master term. It's from a place of no faith or very little faith. Even Jesus, in that case, calls them out for having little faith. So here, the lepers recognize that Jesus had a position of authority. They had heard about his power but they had failed to see him as God. They were not recognizing him as the Messiah in calling him master. So Jesus is the master, but he is so much more than that. And we see in verse 14, where Jesus saw them. Seeing is important. Someone sees someone else in the Bible. When God sees us especially, it means that he knows us. He understands our situation. We can, we can believe that Jesus understood that they were isolated and they were desperate. Without outside help, they would probably die as lepers. And when he saw them, he had compassion on them. Jesus knew their hearts as well. He knew that they did not see him properly, but we see that he healed them anyways. He went ahead and performed this miracle to cleanse them. All ten benefited from the miracle of healing by the power of God that is in Jesus. But we see he doesn't heal them immediately. He first tells them to go to the priests. So he says, go and show yourselves to the priests. And the law at this time, the Old Testament law, requires a person with leprosy 
if they are healed, if they have recovered from this condition, to go to the priest, and the priest would declare them clean. They would examine them and make sure whatever skin disease has been, is gone, is cleared up. The person would make a sacrifice, and then they would be declared clean. So the priests are responsible for declaring these lepers to be clean on the outside, that their skin disease has cleared up. So one thing we notice here is that Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the merciful healer. But just benefiting from his healing power, that these, as these lepers did, does not automatically mean that all ten are in the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that all ten are believers. And like we'll see, the, the nine lepers who did not come back to worship God, they, they had no faith, at least not yet. Their healing was not an indication of a changed or a healed heart. But we see here that Jesus is the merciful healer. He has mercy in spite of these people not believing in him. It's mercy, it's compassion that drives him to heal these lepers. And then the last thing we see is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. The power to heal like this is reserved for one and only, and that is God himself. What the lepers saw partially, they they knew partially and called Jesus master. We can see clearly that Jesus is God. Old Testament prophecy tells us that Jesus is God. John the Baptist Jesus himself and the apostles who wrote the rest of the New Testament all claim Jesus' deity, that he is God. He has come as a man to save his people. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God with three persons. And additionally, As we continue to look at the passage, we'll notice that Jesus does not reject or refuse the healed man's worship. He doesn't tell him to not thank him or praise him. If he were not God, it would be blaspheming, it would be wrong and sinful for him to accept the praise and the thanks of this man. But he does not stop him. Because it is right and it is good to worship the one true God, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So friends, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you see him as a good teacher or someone who is far off? Are you like the ten lepers to consider him master, but not understand that he is God and that he is Lord? If he is not your Lord and your Savior, then do not delay. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus as your Savior. And then follow him as your Lord. If you want to know more about what that means, how to do that, please get in touch with me. You can talk to Luke. Whoever invited you to this meeting can get you in touch with us. 
Well, let's continue on and look at point number two. Point number two is what is worship? What is worship? We'll look at verse 15 and 16. So Jesus cleansed the lepers. And then 15 says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. This healed leper who returned to Jesus is engaged in worship. He's worshiping God in those two verses that we see. So let's take a closer look at the biblical truths about worship that are revealed here in this passage. The first one is, worship is a response to God's gracious work. Worship is a response to God's grace. We see this evidence in even the way we typically conduct our meetings. When we gather together as WSBC, which this online meeting is not a gathering of WSBC. Gathering means we're in person. We're together in person. During our normal gatherings, we begin with a scriptural call to worship. This is when we read a passage that where we see God's goodness, His grace, His mercy. We are called by the Bible, by God's Word, to praise Him and to worship Him. So every service that we have, every gathering, we worship in response to God's gracious work. And we see that here. The leper was healed, and in response to God's gracious work, he's worshiping God. So for us to worship well, we must see and be reminded of God's work. We should be reminded of God's gracious work in our own lives. We should be reminded of God's gracious work in the lives of people around us, of our friends, fellow members. We want to know and to see and to recognize those things as God's work. We also should recognize and see the work of God through Jesus on the cross. That that is the picture of God's grace, is Jesus on the cross. We also want to recognize God's gracious work throughout history, looking all the way back starting with Adam and moving all the way forward. Even after the, the New Testament times and into the first, the first church and the all through the centuries of godly men and women that God has worked in and through. Those things should cause us to see God's gracious work and to worship Him for it. As we worship God, the second thing that we see here is that, that worship includes praise and thanksgiving. That's not an exhaustive list of what worship is, but we see from this text the man praising God with a loud voice, falling at Jesus' feet and giving him thanks. Imagine if someone gave you a million dollars. If they handed you a million dollars cash, 
you would look at the cash and look at them and say, this is amazing. How can I ever thank you enough? That's what we do with God when we recognize and see his gracious work in the world and in our own lives and in the lives of others. We look at it and we look to God and say, this is amazing. How can I ever thank you enough? And that's what we want to do. We declare what God has done as amazing, as wonderful. And then we thank him for it. I confess I have not been very thankful this week. I've been more angry and irritated and demanding than I have been thankful. I see now that it's been wrong of me to to look at what I consider unjust, unkind, unwise around me, and I forget that God is at work in me, through me, in the lives of people around me. He's not as concerned with my lockdown as much as he is concerned with my neighbor's soul. So my situation might be upsetting, but it does not release me from the need, from my need to praise and to thank my Savior. And that goes for all of us. No matter what our situation is, we can praise and thank our Savior. So we we worship. We wonder, how do we worship? The first step is finding, looking at ways to praise and to thank God. Another thing that we see here about worship is that worship happens at Jesus' feet. Worship happens at Jesus' feet. It's difficult to sit at someone's feet and feel proud. If you happen to trip and fall and you landed at someone's feet, you might look up at their face and realize you have just lost yours. It would be embarrassing and humbling. It would be hard to be prideful after falling and landing at someone's feet. Well, the the healed leper comes to Jesus, voluntarily fell on his face at Jesus' feet. He's taking the position of being humble. He's humble before God. And this is what it means to worship at Jesus' feet, is to worship with humility. We don't come to God saying, I'm going to give God my worship because he needs it. Or I have something to give. No, we come humbly, knowing that we are not worthy to be in the presence of the Almighty God. But he has invited, he has allowed us to come and to worship at his feet. So we must do that with a humble heart, not with a prideful one. Now, number four uh, of the points under what is worship, the fourth thing is that it's for everyone and it's for anyone. This man is a Samaritan. Luke, the writer, adds that in to the end of verse 16. Now, he was a Samaritan. The Jews who were with Jesus would have been shocked about this in multiple ways. One of those is that as a foreigner, 
Jesus healed this man. He had compassion on the foreigner. He showed mercy to the Samaritan. Most Jews would not have wanted to do this. They would have been against showing mercy and compassion. They might have even picked out who's the Jews among the ten. Okay, they can get healing. Who's the, who's the Samaritans? Okay, they are left outside. But Jesus does not do that. He makes no distinction between Jew and Samaritan when he cleanses the lepers. The second thing is that Jesus is accepting the worship of a Samaritan, of this foreigner. Not only did Jesus heal him, he's accepting the worship of him. So we see that God's mercy is not limited to a certain type of person. Worship of God is not reserved for a certain type of person. Our nationality, our talent, our status, our background, all of these things do not matter when it comes to worshiping our Lord. And along with that, we should consider that the mercy and compassion we show should be similar to and should match how Jesus shows mercy. We should not take discrimination about with, with our compassion or with our mercy. We too should show mercy and compassion to anyone. Because worshiping God is for anyone. Now I have two bonus points to add to this that are not specifically from this passage, but I think are very important that, to note here briefly. From God's word, we also know that worship is to be on God's terms. We should worship based on what God tells us how he wants to be worshiped. We should look at his word and approach him in a way that's pleasing to him. We should not assume that what we want to do is the right way to worship him, but we should consider what his word says. And the second is that we should worship God only and be very careful to make sure we are only worshiping God, not his things, not other people, not a certain place, a location, like the Jews may have wanted or been tempted to do with their temple, or the Samaritans tempted to do with their temple, thinking that either one of those was the right place to worship, and it becomes an idol. The building becomes the, the object of worship instead of God. So we must worship God only. As Jesus told Satan in Luke chapter 4, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It is easy for us to lose sight of Christ and to direct that continuous flow of worship at something or someone other than Christ. But we must be diligent to refocus our worship on God. Take every opportunity to make sure we are worshiping God and no one else. Now, if you remember the main point of today is Jesus is the ultimate object of worship and faith. Well, point number three helps us to bridge that gap, helps us to see how faith relates to worship. 
So point number three is, how does faith inform worship? How does faith inform or influence worship? And we'll look at verse 17 to 19. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So only one of the ten come back. All would have noticed they were healed. The skin disease was obviously there. Not just the way it looked, but the way it felt. So when it was gone, they would have noticed. Now upon sensing that their bodies were healed, nine of them pressed on to see the priest. But one recognized God's gracious work and turned back to worship him. In response to this, Jesus answers with these three questions. And I don't think he was actually expecting answers to these, but he was making at least a couple of points with these three questions. First, Jesus consciously knew, consciously had mercy on and healed a foreigner. It was no accident that Jesus healed a Samaritan that day. He wants his followers to see his willing compassion on those who are sick, those who are unclean. His compassion and mercy on these lepers, and not of a certain race, but on all. Just as he has compassion on all people. And this point is for us as well. As Christ followers, we should have that kind of compassion on all people. This means we show mercy and compassion for the people who are in control of locking down our city. It means we show compassion and mercy toward the Dabai with the megaphone. They are also people that God shows mercy to and desires to show compassion to. And as his followers, we are called to do the same. Second, Jesus shows that not all who recognize his authority believe in him. All lepers called out to him. All ten of these lepers called out, calling him master, but only one worshipped him as God. They had heard of Jesus' power to heal. They called him master, but only one knew him as Lord. So for all of us, we should examine ourselves, making sure that we are in the faith, that we have humbled ourselves like this leper did at Jesus' feet, and in believe that Jesus is God and is the Savior of God's people. We must believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God and that he is Savior. Now let's continue looking. Verse 19 uh, says this, and he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The word in Greek here that's for made well relates to salvation. 
It's a, it's a completely different word than the one used for cleanse in verse 14 and verse 17. In verse 17, Jesus said, we're not 10 cleansed. But here he says, your faith has made you well. This is pointing to a, sal- a salvation, a, a healing on the inside. Uh, it's, it's related to rescuing or redeemed out of danger. So this is the one that the faith, his faith has made him well on the inside. It is faith that has saved him. Faith in Jesus. So we see here that faith informs worship. Or we could say in another way, faith is a prerequisite to worship. And that is to true worship. It does not require faith to sing a song, but it requires faith to truly worship Jesus. In high school and college, there are some courses, some classes, that require other classes to be taken first. Meaning, you have to take chemistry one before you can take chemistry two. Chemistry one is a prerequisite of chemistry two. So in a similar way, faith is a prerequisite to true worship. Faith is a requirement. And we see from this passage that it's possible to call out to God, maybe recognizing his authority, just as these lepers recognized Jesus' authority and called him master. But it does not indicate that faith is present. And we must be reminded that this faith that the leper had comes from, is given by God. It's another one of his gracious works of bringing this man to faith. Any faith is God's work to bring a person from spiritual death into spiritual life. It's his work of grace in a person that they would have faith. It's not the effort of that person. We cannot muster up faith. We cannot find it within ourselves. It comes from God making us born again. So the leper had faith because of the work of God in his heart. We have faith because of the work of God through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So consider your worship. Is your worship consistent with your claim to faith? If you claim to have faith in Jesus, does the way you conduct your life reflect that? Some questions to consider. Where do your thoughts go during the day? What do you think about in the margin time? What do I do with my own time? How do I spend time? What do I hope for? What do I long for? What are my desires? And then when I drift off to sleep at night, what am I thinking about? What brings me comfort as I go to sleep? What am I hoping for, wishing for, thinking about? 
the answers to these questions point to, help us understand where our mind is and where our heart is and where our worship is directed. If we claim to be a follower of Jesus, if we claim to have faith in him, but our life, the the worship that is coming out of us, if we are worshiping other things by what we think about and how we spend our time, then it may call into question whether we truly are a believer. So if you say, I'm a Christian, does your worship agree with that? If not, you may not be a Christian at all. And you should make sure that you have repented of your sin and believed in Jesus as your Savior. And for many of us, often our worship is not directed where it needs to be. And so we must turn to Jesus, humble ourselves, and worship Him at His feet. We do that by looking first for ways, remembering reasons to praise Him and to thank Him. You see, it's not natural for us to worship God. Our hearts are far from Him. It's all too natural for us to worship other people, to worship ourselves, or to worship the things of God rather than Him. So we must be diligent to check our hearts, to question our motives and our thoughts, and then humble ourselves at the feet of Jesus and worship Him. Now you may remember in the introduction I quoted a definition of worship that described worship as a continuous outpouring of ourselves in light of some object. Well, we can see from this passage that Jesus is that ultimate object of worship. Not the Samaritan temple, not the Jewish temple, not ourselves, but Jesus is the ultimate, the highest object of all worship. I think it's helpful to look now at a definition of Christian worship specifically. This is a a definition developed by Bob Coughlin. He's a a writer and co-writer of many hymns that we sing at WSBC. He just defines Christian worship in this way. He says, Christian worship is the response of God's redeemed people to his self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ in our minds, affections, and wills in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says there, it's a response of God's work in glorifying God in our minds, our affections, and our wills. So we want our minds, our affections, and our will to be glorifying God. That is worship. God has revealed himself to us. Let's respond by worshiping him with all of our mind all of our affections, which is our deepest love, and with all of our will, all of our desires. 
Let's pray. God in heaven, we praise you, the one true God of all heaven and earth. May we glorify you with our singing and our prayers. And God, may we worship you with our entire lives, not only on Sunday during a few songs. We ask that you would be so wonderful, so big in our minds and our hearts, that we would see the ultimate, the best, is that we would always and continually worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.